every race and every nation Sing it out, sing a new hallelujah Let us sing love to the nations Bringing hope of the grace that has freed us Make it known and make him famous Sing it out, sing a new stand as we begin our worship this Sunday. Back into order, who makes the orphan a 
something a little different this morning as the music plays. Why don't we high five, welcome people this morning, catch a name if you can, and then we'll come back and finish the song. Welcome to Hopevale. Uh, just a quick reminder, um, next week is the end or start. I don't know which one it is, but we do switch the clocks forward. Um, so if you don't do that, you will be late. <laughs> but early for the 1045, which I have a feeling is going to be really big. <laughs> so with a couple of announcements, Pastor Ken. All right, fall back, spring forward, spring forward. forward. Yeah, spring forward. That's it. That's it. Uh, you, you may be seated. Well, good morning. It's, it's such a joy to worship with all of you. His grace is enough. Isn't that awesome? His grace is enough. I'm Pastor Ken. And if you're new at Hopevale or you've been here for a while and just want to know more about this church, we have a special class just for you. Uh, Get to Know Hopevale meets next week, March 13th. Remember the time change. At uh, 12 noon, it meets for one hour in the venue and lunch is provided this time. This is a Get to Know Hope Vale lunch edition, okay? So we encourage you to be part of this one-hour class that will give you some great basic information about our church, who we are, what we believe, and then how you fit. So uh, you can sign up. You can get more information. Also sign up at the welcome desk after the service. Get to Know Hope Vale next week at noon, all right? So as our ushers come forward, uh, let's prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through giving. And I know many of us give online now, and then many of us give during a worship service like this. But however you give, let's take this time during the offering to prepare our hearts, really to thank the Lord for all that he has provided for us. God is the one who enables us to provide for ourselves, to create wealth, the Bible says. But also, this is a good time for us to just ask the Lord again, what priorities do you want me to have, us to have as a couple or a family, with what you have entrusted to us? So let's thank the Lord during this time. Let's ask him once again, Lord, what are your priorities for what you've entrusted to us? And let's do that as we pray today. Father, we do thank you for this time to worship you. Thank you for the reminder your grace is enough for all that we face. And Lord, we need that reminder this morning. Uh, Many in our church family are facing health issues. I pray that your grace would be enough this morning, that your spirit will give encouragement and help. Lord, family issues come up in our lives. We're dealing with some difficult situations. And we pray that you'll meet us where we are. Give us what we need. 
And Lord, thank you for this opportunity to worship you through giving of what you have entrusted to us. And Lord, we want to do that faithfully. We want to do that not just as a perfunctory act, but as an act of worship to the God who has enabled us to live and move and have our being in this world. And so we pray for that with thanksgiving. Amen.
God, we welcome you here. Holy Spirit, you are welcomed in this place. Just come flood the atmosphere. Nothing can compare and nothing's worth more than your presence, Lord. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And that is a song we sing not only that the Spirit would be welcome in this place, but that He would be welcome in our lives. It's great to worship with you uh, today. And um, before we get into uh, the message, there are a few announcements I want to make. By the way, you know, we finished up our Love Your Neighbors series last week, which just was a tremendous experience for us as a church together. And we've left up the display out in the lobby for another week. So if you haven't hadn't had a chance to go by and, and look at that and read some of the cards, we'd encourage you to do that. Just a great time for us as a church. So a few announcements I want to make. Uh, the first one has to do with the cards that are in your chair. Go ahead and take those. That's for this year's Bible camp, which starts on Monday, June 20th. Now, as many of you know, Bible camp is one of the biggest ministries that we do here as a church. And every year, it keeps on growing. Last year, we hit record numbers with 630 campers registered and over 300 volunteers helping out. I mean, that is amazing. And so to address the challenges that come with that kind of growth, we're going to be making a couple changes to Bible camp this year that we wanted you to be aware of. Uh, The first thing is that we are switching to running Bible camp Monday to Thursday instead of Sunday to Wednesday. Monday to Thursday. So it's still a four-night experience like it was before, but we're going to start on Mondays. We feel like it's better to help us with setup and preparation and training and things like that. Now, with that change going Monday to Thursday, it also means that we will not be doing a community-wide carnival like we've done in the past. So that is a change, and it's a big change. We realize the carnival has been a great event for us as for us, you know, over the years, but we really want to focus all our energies on Bible camp, and we feel like Monday to Thursday is the best way to go with that. Now, that last Thursday night, the final night, we're going to do some special things on the closing evening for campers and their families, so we've got that in place, and we're working on that, but it will be different than the carnival. So that's one of the changes. We're going to go Monday to Thursday. Then the other change is this, that uh, Bible camp this year is going to be for children as of this fall entering kindergarten through fifth grade. So K through fifth grade. That's a little tightening of the age window, but again, with the growth in numbers and really just wanting to make Bible camp the best experience possible, we're going with that for this summer. Now, there's a lot more that you can learn about Bible Camp on this card. We also have set up a website, BibleCamp at Hopevale.org, and you can learn more about that. We'll be talking about Bible Camp in the months to come, including ways that you can get involved. But for now, we wanted to get that into your hands. So that's what is coming up in June. But let's back up a bit, because I also want to talk about just some things that are happening Uh, the next few weeks here at Hopewell. First of all, three weeks from today, hard to believe, March 27th is Easter Sunday, where we will celebrate together the resurrection of our Lord. We're going to have four services that day, 8, 9.30, 11, and 12.30, so it's a little different than what we normally do. We're also going to have concurrent children's ministries programming for Tot Town children ages birth through pre-K at each service. We're also going to have the family venue open as well as additional seating in the 200 wing. Uh, Here in the auditorium, we will open the doors 20 minutes before each service. We're also going to do valet seating like we do on Christmas Eve. Now, historically speaking, it's those middle two services at 9.30 and 11 that are the most crowded. I want you to know that, so plan accordingly. And then also with that, if you are a Hopevale regular, we would love for you to attend either at 8 or 12.30, if you can, to make room for more visitors. And that's what's coming up. Can't wait to worship with you on Easter. Three days prior to Easter then, on Thursday, March 24th, 
We will have our Monday, Thursday communion services here in the worship auditorium at 6 and 7.30 p.m. This is a solemn time of worship and preparation as we reflect on the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus our Savior. If you are newer to Hopel and you have never uh, attended one of these services before, I'd encourage you to come. It is incredibly powerful and moving. Some here at Hopel say it's their favorite service of the year. We'll have Tatam programming uh, birth through pre-K for the 6 o'clock service, but not the 7.30. That's the Monday-Thursday service. Both those services are at the end of the month leading up to them. Then beginning next week, we'll start a series called The Last Days of Jesus. The Last Days of Jesus, where we're going to look at the Gospels and these snapshots from the final hours in the life of Jesus and their significance to our lives. The series starts next week. We'll run through the Sunday after Easter okay, which is April 3rd. And then the following Sunday after that series, on April 10th, we're going to have, as we do every year, a special baptism worship service, April 10th, where we will celebrate with fellow believers in Jesus Christ who are publicly proclaiming their faith in him through believers' baptism. And so it's in light of that service, which is just over a month away today, I want to spend our time today talking with you about baptism. Baptism. What does baptism mean? What does the Bible teach about it? Why does it matter? And why do we carry on the practice of baptism here? That's where we're going to go today, all right? And to begin, I'm going to start in the most unlikeliest of places by talking about politics. That's right, politics. So here we are, March 6th. We are right in the thick of it. Super Tuesday was just behind us, and uh, Michigan primaries are just in front of us, two days away. And so we see all the commercials, we watch all the nonstop news coverage, we hear all the conversation around us. And so even if we don't care much about politics, even if we don't want to get that involved, it's hard to escape it, isn't it? People are talking about it, they're fired up about it, some are excited, some are angry, some are worried. It is a pretty emotional time, and maybe you are one of them. And you know what? I get it. I do. A couple weeks ago at one of our Sunday Night Spotlight teaching times on this very topic of Christianity and politics, and teaching through that, I talked about why politics can be so appealing for people. See, politics speak to our greatest hope, our deepest fears, our biggest frustrations. That's why everyone gets so riled up. Now, politicians recognize this, so they promise better days ahead, not only by telling you how things are going to improve, but also by reminding you of how bad things are right now. You know, if you listen long enough, your relatively happy life will soon turn to anger and despair. Just wait, right? If only the economy was better. If only the threat of terrorism was gone. If only all the illegal immigrants were deported. If only everyone had health care. If only, if only, if only. We convince ourselves that our lives would be better if things would change, and politics offer us that hope. That is life in America in 2016, and when you're in it, it feels unique. It feels distinct. It feels like something that's never happened before. But you know what? It has. It really has. Maybe not, you know, all the social media, all the sound bites, all the wall-to-wall coverage, but there has always been deeply implanted in the human heart a frustration with the way things are. A desire to fix all the problems and a longing for something better. It's always been there. That has been the track record of human history, and it's also the testimony of Scripture. You go back to the beginning, ever since the days of our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, and the entrance of sin into the world, mankind has desperately hungered for some kind of hope and change. And it's out of that hunger that people and countries and civilizations have looked to the power of politics and government to bring about that kind of change. Now, while you certainly see that today, you also see it 20 centuries earlier during the time of Jesus Christ. It was there among the ruling elite of the Roman Empire. It was there among the religious establishment. And it was also there among the poor and the downtrodden of the Hebrew people. You know, first century Judaism was in a curious place back then. 
See, on the one hand, they had this rich history, including an era several centuries before, when Israel was the most dominant nation on the planet. That was part of their heritage as God's chosen people. But unfortunately, those glory days had long since passed them by. And that by the time you get to the first century, Israel is no longer this self-governing nation, but they are an oppressed people trying to keep their religion together under the iron fist of Rome. Now, there have been glimmers of hope. There was a revolt of the Maccabees a century and a half earlier where this rebel army took control briefly of Judea, but that was short-lived. Rome actually grew in power after that, leaving the Jewish people even more desperate for some kind of deliverer who would rescue them from Rome and restore the glory of Israel. Now, you need to understand that this longing for a deliverer, that wasn't some pie-in-the-sky wish for them. No, that was deeply embedded as a hope central to their faith in God. Why? Because the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, spoke very clearly about this promised Messiah, this ruler to come who is in the lineage and the spirit of the great King David. And so by the time you get to the first century, that hope for a Messiah was at a fevered pitch. So much so that historians tell us that there were numerous rumors and claims that the Messiah had finally come. And so you have all these self-proclaimed prophets running around, ranting against the Roman establishment, and telling everyone how they would make Israel great again. Yeah, I just said that. Um, Anyways, in this climate of desperation and frustration where all these voices came, there were different voices, radical voices, voices that challenged the establishment. And in that there also appeared one lone voice. And this lone voice connected deeply with those who were genuinely seeking after God. And I'm sure you expect me to say that Jesus was that voice. And while his words would eventually lead to eternal life, before him there was another voice. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah of the Old Testament six centuries earlier predicted that this other voice would one day show up on the scene. And this is actually how the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament begins. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me, or you can get on your smartphone, your tablet. We'll follow along together. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Let's take a look, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That is our message, right? The good news, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. And how does that good news begin? Verse 2, as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. See, Mark and these other first century gospel writers knew that Isaiah's prophecy was being fulfilled right then in their midst, and that the time had finally come for this new and different voice to speak on behalf of the Lord. Now, the religious establishment back then was also speaking and making a lot of noise, but their voice was this self-serving voice, a voice that rang hollow with the people. Verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John, the Baptist, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is an interesting verse because we read this through 2,000 years of church history and the fact that Christianity is the majority religion of our country. And so we see the word baptism, and we don't really bat an eye. Now, we might have some questions about the technicality of that term, but we pretty much know what Mark is describing here in verse 4. We do, and yet historians and Bible scholars will tell you that what Mark is talking about here was an entirely new phenomenon back then, that there was absolutely no historical precedence, religious or otherwise, for what was taking place. So here's Mark, he's describing what John, the forerunner of Jesus, is doing, that he is preaching this message of what? Of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as he does, he's tying this new action of baptism with repentance. What does repentance mean? Repentance means personally acknowledging sin and turning away from it, right? 
tying it with, bat, with repentance, and then also tying it to the forgiveness of those sins. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, that is, acknowledging that they're sinners and in need of forgiveness. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now we're getting a little more detail of what's going on here, right? All this baptizing is taking place in the Jordan River. And we learn that water is involved in what they're doing. And because this is a new phenomenon, they need a word. They need a term to describe what's going on. So I want you to think about this for a moment, right? Our lives today. When something new comes along and we need to call it something, there's one of two ways you can do it. You can either invent a word or make up a word that's never existed before, something like Google, right? Just you you create it. Or you can take an existing term but change the meaning of it, right? So I think of a word like text or texting. I mean, the word text has been around for a long time, but with the advent of text messaging, the word as it's mostly used now, it has this completely new meaning, right? And so if you can follow that analogy, that's actually how the words baptize and baptism came about. The basic root of the Greek word bapto means to dip in or to dip under. There are ancient examples of this word used to describe, for instance, the dipping of fabric into a dye to change its appearance. And then there's also the more intensive form of the word baptizo, which means to immerse. It was used to describe, for instance, the sinking of a ship. And so you have this originally commonplace word that's now being identified with this new practice, and it takes on this more profound meaning. Make sense? And so that's 2,000 years ago, but when it comes to baptism today, you know, a lot of people get hung up on all the different ways Christian denominations practice baptism. They involve water, but some sprinkle, others dip, others pour, and still others immerse. And while it's a good question to think through, for me, I think the even greater question of baptism isn't the mode, that is, the way you do it, but rather the meaning. Why do you do it? What does it mean? And so back then, with this new practice that John and later others were performing, these existing words of dipping and immersing were now being infused with these new spiritual meanings. These acts were being identified with deep religious concepts, right? Like repentance and confession and forgiveness of sins. And because of that, then, it's also becoming this new way for people to personally identify with that message, Now, maybe most people didn't realize it at the time back then, but things were beginning to change in a rather dramatic way. Verse 6 says of John that John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Why that's in there, I don't know, right? Other than to say that I think John was the original hipster before hipster was cool, right? I mean, he's rocking the clothing. He's eating organically, right? Probably has this sweet beard and stash, you know. And if you think that's a tangent, well, whatever. Let's go on. Verse 7, right? And this is John's message, that after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Get ready, John says. There's someone else after me who's going to change things even more radically than I am. And he's going to preach an even more spiritually enduring message than I have. And the work that he's going to do is not just ceremonial. It's going to be transformational. That's what John says. So in verse 9, we are introduced to that other voice. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. There he is, Jesus. Now, this verse has been a head-scratcher for a lot of people, right? Because they read this and they wonder, why was Jesus baptized? You ever think about that? Why was, I mean, if Jesus was really absolutely sinless as the perfect God-man, then it doesn't make sense for him to be baptized, does it? I mean, why do you baptize perfection, right? See, a lot of people today think that the act of baptism itself washes away our sin. Some Christian denominations teach that baptism on its own is an act of salvation and that through that act, our sins will be forgiven whatever the age. But I would contend that the whole of the Bible teaches otherwise. Yes, there is a link between baptism and forgiveness, baptism and salvation. 
The Bible teaches very clearly that salvation comes by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the vehicle of salvation. That is how we experience God's forgiveness. And so baptism then is this outward testimony, this picture, if you will, of an inward reality of spiritual and transformational life change that has already taken place. See, I believe here that the Bible's teaching us that Jesus is baptized not for the purpose of forgiveness, but rather for the purpose of identification. He is identifying himself with this new work of God that is being done, this work of repentance and forgiveness that John was preaching, this new way of the Lord from the voice crying out in the desert. And so with all this, Jesus is baptized, verse 10. And just as Jesus is coming up out of the water, clearly immersed, he saw heaven being torn and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, the voice of God the Father, saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I love this verse because we get to see the convergence of all three members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is affirmed by God the Father. He's prepared for his mission, for his ministry by God the Spirit. From there then, dropping down a couple of verses after Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert, that's verse 12, that's verse 13. We read this in verse 14. That after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the very first sermon, message, ever recorded from Jesus. Repent, turn from your sin, turn from your selfishness, turn from your unbelief, and believe the message of the good news of God. Believe this new message, this true message that what? That the unrivaled, unstoppable kingdom of God has finally come. It's here, it's in your midst, that everything you have been longing for, everything your heart has been hoping for, will be yours if you repent and believe the good news that I've come to bring. That's what Jesus says. And with that message, the ministry of Jesus Christ is set into motion. Three years of teaching and healing and performing miracles and confronting corrupt religion. Three years of pointing people to the love of God and how we can know that personally. Three years culminating with his sacrificial death on the cross where our sins are placed upon him. Jesus as we sung, dying in our place, securing our forgiveness, and offering eternal life to all who would believe this new voice, this new message. A message that, by the way, is validated three days later when Jesus Christ miraculously and victoriously rose from the dead. And as he did, he proved what? He proved that there is no sin too great, no enemy too powerful that can ever separate us from the love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of baptism. And it's interesting because when you get to the end, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the empty tomb, Jesus, before he ascends back up to heaven, leaves these marching orders for his disciples, his followers, both back then and even now today. Matthew 28, verse 19, verse 20, Jesus says, Therefore go. I make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them, identifying them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Here's my message, Jesus says. Go share the message of my kingdom. And as people respond, baptize them so that they too will be identified with my message. And then after that, teach them to obey that message and to live in accordance with it. And ever since then... The message of good news has carried on with the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. And with that message, there's also this powerful practice of baptism which proclaims our identification with our crucified and risen Savior. That's what you get to see in the Gospels about baptism, but it doesn't stop there. As you go on through the New Testament, through the historical book of Acts, through all the epistles, you continue to see the importance of baptism as part of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul, for instance, has a lot to say about baptism. And while we don't have time to look at everything he wrote, to me, these words are the most important. Romans 6, verse 3, verse 4. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized, who ident identified into Christ, were baptized into his death? 
The idea of baptism is our connection with Jesus, with his crucifixion. And what does that identification look like? Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What's Paul saying here? That just as Jesus literally died, was buried in the tomb, and then rose from the dead through his resurrection, just as those things took place, we too identify with Jesus through faith in him, that our sins are buried with him, that we are raised to new life in him, to forgiven life, to eternal life. Now again, it's not the act of baptism that accomplishes that, right? But baptism does beautifully reflect what's really taken place within us. As the Bible says, because of Jesus, we have gone from death to light, from darkness to light, from the exclusion from the kingdom of God to now being included into his kingdom. This is the glorious picture of baptism. Around Hopevale, we often say that baptism is a visible symbol of an invisible reality. A visible symbol of an invisible reality of what has really happened spiritually, eternally in the life of a Christian. The symbol of baptism, we say, is like the symbol of a wedding ring. Think about it. The power of marriage doesn't lie in the rings themselves. No, it lies in the strength of the covenant commitment that a couple makes with each other. I mean, think about it. I could take off my ring right now throw it to one of you in the audience, have you put it on, but that doesn't mean we're married, right? Might mean I'll be dead pretty soon, but it doesn't mean we're, <laughs> we're married, right? No, the ring only has meaning with the commitment that goes along with it. Rings don't make you married. They don't, but they do tell the world that you are married, right? In the same way, here's the point. The Bible teaches that baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but it does tell the world that you are one. Baptism proclaims that you identify with Jesus. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but it does tell the world that you are one. Baptism proclaims that you identify with Jesus. It's the way you tell the world, the way you tell the church, the way you tell your friends, the way you tell your family, the way you tell God, the way you tell yourself that you are all in with Jesus. All in, that your hope, it's, it's more than a yard sign, it's more than a bumper sticker, it's more than a tattoo, it's more than a profile picture, that baptism is the way you proclaim that your life, your identity, your hope, your future, all of it is tied to Jesus. That's what baptism is about. That's what the Bible says. And so before we get to the specifics then when it comes to baptism at Hope L, let me ask you this, where does your true hope lie? Where does your true hope lie? What or who is it that you are looking to, not just to make this world a better place, but also to make your world better? See, in the grand scheme of eternity, politicians are going to come and go. Presidents will come and go. Nations will come and go. And even when they're at their best, they can only improve your circumstances. But Jesus, he came to do much more than that. He came not to improve your circumstances. He came to change your life. He came to forgive your sins. He came to reconcile you back to the God you were created to know and love. That is the work of Jesus the Messiah. You know, a couple weeks ago during the Sunday night spotlight, I said that politics matter, but only to a point. Politics matter, but only to a point. See, politics do matter. I'm not preaching against, you know, disengagement and uninvolvement, but in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to put them into perspective. Because much more than your preferred political party being in power, Jesus has brought his everlasting kingdom to this earth, and one day he's going to return again to establish it fully, finally, and forever. And so have you, will you, identify with Jesus? Like I said before, baptism's the wedding ring. It's important, but a relationship with Jesus begins with the heart. It begins with your heart. It begins with a confession of need, I need a Savior. And then it goes along with an expression of trust. And Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. And so that first step before baptism is you giving your life to Jesus. It's you forsaking all others and giving all of your heart to him. It's a decision we make. It's a line we cross. And if you have never put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, 
and experience God's forgiveness. I invite you to do that today. I invite you, just as Jesus preached, to repent and believe the good news of Jesus, that he loves you, that he died for you, and that he's inviting you to trust him to be your Savior. This is the message of good news, and it's a message far greater than anything else we could ever hear proclaimed. Trust Jesus to be your Savior. So faith comes first, right? And then after that, like we've seen today, there's this proclamation of our faith, this identification with our faith called baptism. Now, as I talk about baptism, I realize that there are probably a lot of questions I haven't addressed. Maybe you feel like you still don't know enough about baptism. Maybe you're confused because you were baptized as a child in another church and you don't fully understand why you have to do it again. Or maybe you've heard everything I've said, but you still don't see the need for it in your life. Or maybe deep down there's a fear. There's a fear in you about all this, and you're just too scared to address it. You know what? We get that. You know, unlike 2,000 years ago when baptism was new and everyone knew what it was about, you know, there weren't all these completing, competing beliefs as to what's going on, right? Today, you're going to find all sorts of views and opinions. And so because of that, as a way to help you work through all the questions and doubts, we offer baptism classes for everyone who wants to learn more. And so later this month, before our baptism service on April 10th, we've got two class offerings. One's on Friday, March 18th in the evening, 6 to 8.30. The other is Saturday, March 19th, that disappeared, uh, 9 to 11.30 a.m., right? This is the way we do to address questions and fears and doubts you might have. We do it in a biblical, informative way while also providing this safe environment with no pressure whatsoever. You know, in the past, we've seen all kinds of people come to this class, young and old, newcomer, long-timer, the eager and the ready and the unsure and the skeptical. Now, going to the class doesn't obligate you to be baptized. You need to be clear about that, right? It doesn't, but I do believe, I think as you go through it, a lot of things are going to click for you, spiritually speaking. They really will. So if you want to attend the class, you can do that one of two ways. You can go by the adults' desk in the lobby. They'd love to help you sign up. Or you can get online, get on our website directly, and you can do that there. We would love to see you be a part of that. Well, today as I close, I want to leave you with this final thought. And this is for all of us, Okay. Because it's easy to listen to a message like this and to lump yourself into one of two categories, right? That either you have or you have not, right? Either you have been baptized or you haven't been baptized. There's only one of two possibilities, right? And if we just think about today's message in terms of this one act of baptism, then that's the case. But I want to challenge you as you leave today to think more broadly about this question. How am I right now identifying with Jesus? How am I right now identifying with Jesus? For some of you, the issue isn't baptism. Rather, it's you making that initial faith commitment of trusting Jesus like I talked about earlier. It's you taking that first step and saying, Jesus, I am forsaking all other loves, all other trusts. I'm repenting of my sin, and I am asking you to be my Savior. For those of you who do take that step, the forgiveness of sins that both John and Jesus preached about, they, it will be yours, right? Now, for others of you who've already made that faith commitment, but you haven't been baptized as a believer, you haven't publicly identified with Jesus. So to use the wedding ring analogy, you have the relationship, Jesus is yours. You just haven't followed through, right, in obedience. You haven't formally symbolized it through baptism. If that's you, I'd encourage you to take the class, to, to take steps towards baptism, and to just let your faith overcome any fears you might have about it, right? Finally, for the rest of you, you're long-timers, right? You've been baptized already. Maybe it was years and years ago. You know, the worst thing you can do is to keep your baptism in the past. To view it as something you've already done, right? You've checked it off the list, and you're never going to think of it again. If that's where you're at, then you've got it all wrong. See, baptism, even though it's not something you keep doing over and over again, it is about your identification with Jesus Christ all throughout your lifetime. Back then, right now, and forever. So beyond just remembering the day you were baptized as a believer, where are you with Jesus right now, right? So you think about your faith. Are things fresh and vibrant, or are they cold and stale? 
You know, if that's where you're at there, then I invite you to come back to Jesus. I invite you to re-identify with him above anything, above anyone else in your life that you are following him as your Lord. You know, whatever category we might fall in today, I think the invitation is clear for all of us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. For this is the greatest of all commandments. This is what we're made for. And so let our lives, all of our lives, identify with Jesus. Let's pray together. In a moment, we're going to respond with a song of worship, but first, let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, into this world to offer us much more than just an alternative government, right? A political establishment. That Jesus came to usher in your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. A kingdom of light, a kingdom of freedom, a kingdom that will endure forever. A kingdom that begins by us repenting, trusting in you, Jesus, and receiving your forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. And Lord, if there is anyone here who has never crossed that line of faith and given their heart to Jesus, may they do so today, right now in the sacredness of this room. But for all of us, Lord, who do identify with you, purify our hearts, clarify our vision, renew our commitment to love you above all else. Lord, you are great. You are good. We worship you. We follow you. We love you every single day of our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.
And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Awesome. So next week, we will start our last days of Jesus series. But as you go from here, may you leave with the confidence that is rooted in the greatness of our God. God bless you. I can see.